So one thing that's been on my mind that I wanted to talk about tonight that I rarely talk about as an aspect of the Buddha's teachings is um, right livelihood. Um, and that being a path factor. Uh, and also a, a lot of dukkha. Does anybody have any dukkha in their life associated with their jobs or lack thereof? <laughs> uh, and uh, so, you know, um, I wanted to kind of talk about that in maybe a non-traditional way. Um, so I just wanted to say that before I kind of get my thoughts together. Um, and so, you know, it's part of the Eightfold Path. So we have these eight practices. Uh, the Buddha, uh, in his Four Noble Truths, you know, brings us to this really kind of great articulation for the way that life works or seems to work and that life is hard. Uh, this first noble truth, life is hard, life is difficult, you don't always get what you want, you often don't, uh, and that, um, you know, that's sort of how it is. And then that we actually cause suffering. Suffering is caused by our reactions to that first one, that we, 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 we become upset, we get angry, we cling, we push away, we avoid, um, we, we get reactive, and we, uh, we suffer because we can't accept or we can't, sort out, or we um, we cling, we get attached, we resist, we get angry. Um, and so that those two right there will keep you busy most of the time trying to sort out, do I need to accept this or do I need to do something about this? Um, and that, you know, when you release yourself from this craving, when you release yourself from this constant festering in the mind of, you know, thinking too much about everything all the time, uh, you kind of feel at ease and you relax and you have this nibbana, this cool down, and that arises, what arises out of that is some wisdom in, in the whole Eightfold Path. Uh, the, the, the medicine to uh, end suffering is to develop and sustain this Eightfold Path, which is eight things. So, again, there's no one thing. We're always looking for the one thing. What's the one thing that I can do? What's the one practice that I can do? What's the one teeth? Technique. I get this all the time with the teacher. Like, dude, just like, what's the gist of this? Like, just give me the one thing that I can do. Um, and actually, I would say that liberation is the mind released from searching for one thing. <laughs> so notice when you're doing that one. If I could just find the right job, I would just be fine. Just got to get the right career with the right amount of money, and then I will stop complaining, I promise. And so that it fits right in the middle. So we have these ethical training factors of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. In livelihood, you know, maybe not a term we use, but our jobs, how we make a living in the world, um, it's part of our practice. And um, maybe we don't talk about it around here so much, actually. But I think before we get into that, I think it's important that we rewind and look at our relationship to money. Because I don't know about you, but if I, if my job stopped giving me money, I would stop showing up. That's the, the codependent relationship of the job. It's like, I'm doing it for the money. Uh, how many of you would go to work tomorrow if they stopped paying you? Good for you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You love it. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we get that, right? That's, so that's the great, I think that's sort of the goal is like, What's the job that you would actually show up for if they stopped paying you? you know? And so um, when we look at our relationship to money, 
it can be interesting to look at what is our, you know, guess what a great question. What is your relationship to money? How much money do you really need? Um, what is your history with money? What were the types of things that your parents bestowed on you around money? Did you grow up with money? Did you grow up without money? Uh, from a very young age, when did you recognize that money was important? Um, what was your first job? Um, all these kinds of questions is we really want to look at our histrionic uh, experience with money. Or do you feel like you're good with money or are you clumsy with money? Um, uh, do you, would you rather just not deal with money or are you preoccupied with money? And I think that if we went around the room, we would see that we all actually probably have a fairly unique relationship to money. We all want it. But the things that we're willing to do to get it, probably wide range, are uh, what we think enough is, wide range of experience. Um, and uh, how much of our mental energy or our mental anguish or whatever is associated with this idea of uh, money and having enough of money. Um, I don't know a lot of wealthy people or a lot of rich people, but the ones that I do know and have met, uh, the people that I've met who seem to have the most amount of money are also some of the people who I've experienced feel like they don't have enough of it. Right, So we kind of can look at their culture. Los Angeles is a very interesting place to look at uh, the wealth gap. Uh, you know, the you know you can be driving in your car uh, here in Los Angeles, and you can look over and see a homeless person on the street holding up a sign to the right, and you look over to the left, and you got somebody uh, in a Tesla. You know, like over here, over here, like in a forty feet radius, you have one extreme to another, and you can probably see that several times a day. You probably do. So there's a lot of um, things we want to consider when we start looking at money. Um, also, when we look at money, we can see that that's probably directly tied to our desire system. I don't know about you, but many of the things that I would like to have uh, require money. Um, but the more I practice and the older I get... I'm starting to recognize a lot of the things that I value are not things that I can purchase so much. Like uh, time. I'm very... Um, I'm very... Since my motorcycle accident and since a lot of things, I'm very um, cautious about how much of my time I'm willing to give away. Because time, as what's the, how it's the old saying, time is money. <laughs> right? And most people get paid in increments by hourly... You get paid by time. How much is your time worth? You know, I believe that they've set the bar that it's pretty low. That, that what's the minimum wage now? Is it, is not, is it 15 in L.A. yet? No, it's 10. It's 10. That's not a lot of dollars per hour. You know? So even if you work 40 hours a week, $10 an hour, what's that, $1,200, $1,600 a month? Is anybody here who could live in L.A. and $1,200 or $1,600 a month? That would almost pay my rent. Almost. So maybe I'll get two jobs. You know, so uh, there's a lot of dukkha and a lot of dissatisfaction and a lot of um, hardship associated with this experience of money. So then we have to look at our desire system in terms of uh, what is it that we actually value? 
What is it that is valuable to you? Is it your car, your clothes, your wardrobe, uh, your phones, your devices, your plates, your dishes, your furniture? Probably you value that to some degree. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's nothing wrong with having things or wanting things. But when we look at what it is that we value, we probably, if we spend some time, we probably realize that the things that we value are not things that are directly tied to money. Uh, things like time or relationships or experience. Um, we probably would recognize that that's more valuable to us. Um, and then we can oftentimes wake up in this dissatisfaction of like, gee, I don't have any time to do the things that I value because all my time is being absorbed into making money so I can live. And so it kind of becomes a vicious cycle uh, that I'm sitting directly in the middle of. I'm certainly not. Uh, if you uh, teaching Dharma is a pretty not wise career choice financially speaking <laughs> um, you know but it's something that I value uh, and so many years ago um, when I started teaching more I had the good fortune of there's been some times in my life where I've had some spaciousness um, and I've really capitalized on, on those experiences when I moved to Nashville, Tennessee I lived there I was really 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 broke for a while I was making 1088 an hour working in an addiction treatment center with teenagers, which I loved and I valued, and I totally would have gone if they stopped paying me. Um, and I, I was doing one of these things where I would like go to the gas station and go in with like a cup of change and go, can I get 487 on pump two? <laughs> and then I had a house that I had built in Massachusetts that I had sold, and I sold this house and I made like maybe like something like $100,000. And then I got a check in the mail from my attorney for like, $103,000. And like yesterday, I was like putting gas in my change. It was like, it was just like, so it was uh, very interesting. And of course, my mind, and I was actually much happier before I got the money, frankly, <laughs> because then I had $100,000. I was like, what am I going to get? <laughs> I'm like, I can all of a sudden purchase all kinds of stupid shit that I don't need. You know, I started looking at guitars and new sneakers and. I'm going to get a car, and I'm just, just like, and, and after, I remember after having the money for about a week or two, I was like, fuck, man, I wish I didn't, I was much better off. So I was actually really suffering with the money. Um, and so I made a choice that I would not buy anything. If I wanted to buy something, I would wait two weeks. And if I still wanted it in two weeks, I'd buy it. And I bought nothing for about a year. Because after two weeks, I couldn't even remember. I was like, what was I going to get? I don't even remember. I was like, what do I want now? I'm like, all right, two more weeks. And then be like, what was it again? Uh, and it was actually really a very interesting um, experience. And it was really also one of the things I actually ended up quitting the job uh, and started teaching meditation uh, in places for free because I had this, the luxury of spaciousness. Uh, and I think that spaciousness is a major luxury. Um, and if you ever get the opportunity to have spaciousness, I think that you should milk it for all it's worth. Mm -hmm. Which I'm, I'm actually in that place right now because I, as you know, many of you, I was in a motorcycle accident um, and when your pelvis is destroyed and you can't move and you're uh, in a hospital bed sitting there every day, you do have the luxury of spaciousness. Mm -hmm. 
Nobody was asking much of me. <laughs> Nobody was making demands on me. Nobody was asking me if I filled out that email, or if I sent out that form, or if I filled out that clinical note. It was like everybody just left me alone. And uh, once I negotiated the sort of dukkha of sitting in the hospital bed, I was just like, when I got moved to the rehabilitation place, I was like, this is fucking great. Mm -hmm. I was like, I, nobody, I'm like, I just can just like sit here and space out. Uh, and so I've been on disability for the last six months and I, I'm working some, I'm teaching and doing some stuff, but I've been um, really making, I've been really actually sitting with some very big questions around at some point the disability will end and, uh, and I like, have my time and I'm like this, I'm like, this is my time. Mm -hmm. And if you want any of it, you better, we're going to have to have a conversation. <laughs> you know, so it's... Uh, so it's putting me back into this, this question. And I, the reason I want to talk about it tonight is it's been on my mind so much of, of this livelihood business of like, okay, how much is enough? Um, and also all of us living in Los Angeles and just the world, the, the dukkha of the world we live in, it's like, I've been, I mean, I've been traveling to a lot. I was in uh, Seattle and I was in San Diego and I was in Nashville. And it seems to me that any city in America worth living in is unaffordable. <laughs> Pretty much. Boston, New York, LA, DC, Miami, Chicago, San Francisco, LA. Like, if it's a city that's pretty cool and maybe you would like to live there, you need 60 grand to even consider having a lifestyle that's somewhat manageable. Okay? And so we, um, when we start to uh, try to integrate this Eightfold Path or these practices, it's like, Okay, so like the question often can be like, we're sitting here meditating, sitting quietly by myself, doing the practice like we did, you know the drill. And oftentimes I can get a sense of like, what the hell does this have to do with livelihood? Like, how is this going to help me with money? You know, and so like a lot of times we can get into these experiences of doubt or just kind of like, I know for me, I'd be like, you know what, man? I, I got shit to do. I got problems to solve. I don't have time to drive over here and just do this. <laughs> Can't afford it. You know? And so, you know, um, you know, where do you go from here? It's like one of those things that Buddha did teach this idea of right livelihood. And so what did he say about that? And unfortunately, he doesn't say a lot in terms of what can be helpful for us because he was teaching these practices 2,600 years ago in rural northern India. Now, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure there was not a lot of jobs one could get. There was probably like five or maybe ten things you could do. Uh, but for us, in, in, the, in the dominant paradigm of our culture, you know, does anybody struggle still with this age-old question? You ever sit around thinking to yourself, what do I want to be when I grow up? Still, you know, and then a lot of times you become it, and you still like I was going to be a Dharma teacher. And I'm like I don't know about this Dharma teacher shit. What do I want to be when I grow up? I'm so sick of that question. I'm not sure that question ever goes away. So there's maybe three things I want to offer, and I want to leave some time because I'm really more interested in having a conversation. And hear what you think about this, because I think this is something that seems to be up for everybody. And how can we use practice and Dharma practice and some of the ideas we hear 
hear it against the stream or any of the other classes you go to, like where is the integration uh, between these practices? Um, and so there, there's three things, uh, there's actually six things, but I'll try to weave them. There, there, there's three ways in which that I like to um, think about my livelihood. Um, and, and the first one is trying to find some work um, that uh, has harmlessness at the core. Do no harm. Now, that can mean a lot of different things. Now, also, looking at the culture and the corporate structure, not that easy to work for a company that does no harm. You know? So when we look at it, there's two ways to look at it. There's internal and external. There's trying to find work where the energy that we put into our days is actually not creating more harm for the planet or the people on it. And trying to find work that's not harming us. Oftentimes we externalize those things. So trying to get yourself in a situation where your work environment is some, to some degree harmless. Um, and so maybe you feel good about it or you feel good enough about it. Uh, and also we have to keep in mind the other... Th- thing I want to weave into this is the three characteristics is that trying to understand that the job you have right now might be subject to this law of impermanence. You ever be having a job that you don't like and like I'm going to fucking be in this job forever and this sucks and it's always going to be like this and I'm trapped and I'm stuck. Uh, I've had lots of work days where I could not see beyond the other side of that so even when we look at harmlessness, we also want to look at the fact that this may have an expiration date on it. And oftentimes that can give you some ease uh, by just, uh, if you have a job that you kind of just don't like. So not only do we want to try to find work where we're not harming, but what's the harm that is causing us? And this also can be a place where just mindfulness practice or these practices that we're doing can maybe get you through the day at times or can allow you to see the bigger picture in those moments when you get in that kind of myopic experience with just like, this job sucks and I'm always going to be here and I'm stuck here and I'm already behind and I'm going to be behind next month and it's just all a big shit show. And then you're just suffering, suffering, suffering because you're looking at it through a very narrow, narrow lens. Uh, which brings me to the second point uh, is trying to find work what I, where we have some degree of what I call appropriate happiness. A job that I don't hate too much, we might say. I know I, I've had a lot of jobs that I did not like, but I found that oftentimes in jobs that I didn't like, I could find ways to go, this is okay for now. This kind of sucks, and this is definitely not my dream come true, and I'm not getting paid enough, and... Uh, but you know what, like I kind of like a couple people in the office I like or this and you know, there's actually some things going on here that I'm not recognizing that I, I could probably take advantage of in the meantime. So how can we bring some appropriate happiness or how can we really aim the mind or hearken ourselves and say, okay, this is not a great situation, but I'm actually going to do my best to not make it worse. And so this is where we can find, we can get really, uh, in work environments, there can be lots of complaining and blaming, and this isn't fair, and this is bullshit, and how can they, and how is this. And we, we, uh, I know that a lot of work environments can be sort of toxic in that way. 
So how can we take that higher road of uh, trying to look around and say, okay, like, this isn't great, but this is maybe temporary, and how can I um, find more ease and more uh, level of acceptance? Or, you know, where is it not so bad here that I'm not overlooking? Because if you're looking for the bad and what's wrong, you should not give yourself a whole lot of credit for moments where you can point out what's not right about this moment. You know, if you're looking for what's wrong, gonna find it pretty quick, right? Not that hard to recognize. If not, yeah, you'll imagine it. And so then again, this points to the second characteristic of looking at jobs through the lens of impermanence and looking at jobs through the lens of dukkha. It's like, yeah, there's, you know, that's part of the arrangement. The reason why they give us money for the job is because we're doing something that nobody really wants to do. <laughs> so like, here you go, I'll tell you what. You're going to do this thing. It's not that great. It's kind of annoying. You have to deal with some money, but we'll give you some money. And you're like, yeah, well, okay, I guess not so bad for now. That's basically what, job, what jobs are. You know, unless, of course, you're in the good fortune of, um, you know, having a job that you love that you, would, that you would do even if they stopped paying you, which I think to some degree is the goal. Uh, and which brings me to the, the third uh, thing. So that's like trying to find um, this idea of appropriate happiness, harmlessness, and also a service. Where, you know, and sometimes I know that for me, like working with, with teenagers in that substance abuse center for so long, I worked there for four years, um, I was not making enough money to get by at all, but I loved the work so much that uh, I, I, part of my values and there was something about that job that was so uh, good for my heart that I was willing to be the guy, the annoying guy at the gas station who was putting 488 in the tank and, uh, and, being, and having a lot of renunciation around entertainment and food and just like living a very more humble lifestyle because um, the service that I was doing was so rich. But it was also temporary, you, you know. I have a theory about teenagers and I think that most people can only work for them for a window of time. I'm one of those people. I hats off to people who can work to them. And so this idea of service also can fulfill this third characteristic of, of you know, this idea of self. And so when we look at, you know, um, money, desire, livelihood, we find that we want to learn how to balance um, the material, uh, which with the spiritual, which is a word I almost never say. And to me, all spiritual is, is just the opposite of material. It's just like not material, it's spiritual. It can't be measured or summed up. But it's really the emotional experience. So how do we, um, sometimes, and probably more times than often, we'll recognize that we probably, to serve the spiritual, to serve the, the core self and to have a sense of service and goodwill and do something that's meaningful to us, there's a pretty good chance you're going to have to take less money for that one. And so when we're negotiating, like, what is it that I really need to have? If you need to have the fancy house and the fancy neighborhood and the fancy car, you're probably going to have to work 60 hours a week and you're probably going to have to do a bunch of shit you don't feel good about. So... You know, there's a trade-off in that experience and that there's, there's this experience of equanimity where we're trying to recognize, like, what's more important to me? You know, 
is it the world and status and gain and praise? Do I really think that that's going to make me happy in the long run? Maybe it will, I don't know. Or am I more, is my values more in line with, with, with time and, and, and with spaciousness and with, with people and, and being of service? Um, so, you know, when you start to um, look at right livelihood, boy, it gets pretty complex pretty quick, doesn't it? It's just a matter of, and I feel like when we look at the long-term goal of our life of really trying to have a realistic happiness or genuine happiness, um, this is a really an area where a lot of things converge. A lot of things converge because we do need money to live. We need to work for that money. We do need to consider what kind of work we want to do. And, you know, we might be have periods of time where we choose to go back to school or for, in my case, I chose to have a couple years where I really had to live very, very frugally and, like, really keep track of every dollar because of the fact that my, my heart was being fed in such a way that I felt like it was worth it to me. I was like, I'm willing to make these material sacrifices because this seems to be so in, enriching for me. And a lot of times you have to do things that seem risky or scary. A lot of people I know, they go back to school or they, they get rid of a career that makes a lot of money and they get into something else that doesn't. So I think we want to try to figure out how do we serve our own best, deepest desire, uh, considering all of these things that I've mentioned. So I think I'm going to stop there and we have some time. I'm really curious if you have any questions, that's fine. But I'm also more curious on how you 